0: is Mystery History Theater. Um, the overarching title for this is Who Ordered the Hit on Abe? Um, this is Act 6, I guess. In this, in this particular uh, segment, we'll, we'll take a look at Booth. That's John Wilkes Booth. Anybody who is cognizant of the fact that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated is probably familiar uh, that with the name of the assassin, which is John Wilkes Booth. He also went by a couple other names at different times in his life. John Byron Wilkes, was a name he used early in his career when he wanted to, for a period, distance himself from his acting family with Edwin and Junius. He was also known by uh, John Byron Wilkes Booth. And at the end of his life, as you will see, uh, he died as John Wilkes. But John Wilkes Booth, uh, as far as anybody knows, the story goes for the most part, right, that uh, he was a Southerner who was supposedly absolutely crushed by the fact that the South lost and in a, I guess, vindictive fury, uh, killed Lincoln. Uh, there's, there are two books out there. I'm just going to – off the top of my head, it was uh, – one of the bo- books I'm thinking of is the, uh, the Mad Booths of Maryland, I believe, is one book. And there was another written by his granddaughter, I believe it was his granddaughter, uh, this one uh, mad act, I believe – more on that later. I really wasn't going to talk about it, so I didn't get uh, too precise about the titles, but the point I'm trying to get across is is that y- you get the feeling that he was temporarily insane, you know, <laughs> lost his wits because of his anger. Uh, but I, the picture that you get of Booth, though, the more you find out about him, it doesn't seem like that was the case. Uh, still, some say that he was agitated about the... the, the uh, Events of April uh, 1865, uh, with Lee finally surrendering, it, obviously the gig was up, and it had been up for, for a number of months. Uh, to be generous, so so you know everything else was, was just pretty much de you know, just waiting for the, the fat lady to sing uh, and have the uh, South reabsorbed into the Union. The hit did not make any sense if it were for a military purpose. And I said this before, and I won't have to go through it again. Assassination had nothing to do, in a sense, with the war. It made no sense for the Confederacy to do something like this. However, they were blamed for it. And as I think uh, you'll find as we continue, they were deliberately blamed to <laughs> point the uh, culpability for Lincoln's assassination elsewhere because it really was his own that did him in not unlike caesar not unlike kennedy who else can get closest so we pretty much think of booth as the first what lone gunman in modern american history if you want to call that modern uh, but booth when you find out more about him i mean he was he was an actor of certain import and to be such in those days, I mean, you, I mean, that was topping out in the entertainment scale, right? I mean, there's nothing else going on except for theater. There's no movies. There's no radio, no TV. He, he obviously got a lot of attention, and uh, and I would, I would have to say he strikes me a bit as a, a narcissist. But maybe in that profession, uh, even as it is today, uh, you have to be one to a certain extent. I don't know. It seems to me that Booth's only cause was Booth. And money, of course, factored big in whatever he did. Uh, He was a mercenary of sorts, but for the country of John Wilkes Booth and nothing else. Uh, So we'll find out more about that later. Um, I had uh, talked to Troy Cowan, an author, who wrote two books, uh, one of which uh, centers on Booth's little-known wife. There's, I guess, some kind of um, parsing of legalities when it comes to was that marriage legal Uh, it probably would have been nullified because she was already married though the husband was very absent uh, a seaman. but they did get married and they did get a license so as much as I think the people behind the descendants of uh, his wife want to say there was no marriage uh, there was a marriage but of course the footnote is it would have been certainly uh, nullified but it it did um, produce uh, offspring. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a look into just excerpts of two books that give somewhat of a portrait of Booth. One will be Dark Union, from which I've read already. But this one um, comes from uh, Clary E. Lachlan, who wrote the book The Death of Lincoln, the story of Booth's plot, his deed, and the penalty. It was uh, published by Doubleday, Page & Company, New York, 1909. This book is interesting because uh, she gets a chance in some places to interview people who were around at the time. And that's Timmy, by the way, if you haven't heard Timmy. Timmy's in the house today. And uh, it's it's interesting to hear those voices because even the uh, famed um, uh, Confederate commander, uh, John Mosby, was alive in 1905 and did give some interviews. In fact, he even mentioned that he knew that there was there were kidnapping plots afoot uh, for Lincoln and he also was surprised to see that its uh, source uh, was uh, in his own party, not only in the Union, but in his own party. So some of those uh, principles were still alive at the turn of the century, the uh, 19th into 20th. And that, that's kind of interesting. If, if the subject uh, is both coherent and honest. It really, if you, can, if you can believe that, and I don't know why you would not in some cases, but if, if that's okay, if, you, if that's not a problem, then what they have to say is fascinating. So I'm just going to read a little bit uh, by uh, Lachlan about Booth. And as I, when you first hear uh, her description, remember, this is a woman writing this. And I don't say that to besmirch, uh, female authors, it's just that when you hear the description, you realize uh, probably a guy would not have written in this manner, but that may uh, be better that it wasn't written by a male, because certainly uh, Booth, uh, let me just put it this way, it's a little indelicate, but Booth got more snatched than Frank Sinatra, let's put it that way. All right, I'll pick it up uh, with uh, Lachlan's physical description of Booth. He was tall and full of slender grace. His features were classic in their perfectness. His black eyes were teasing, tender, laughing, bewitching. A crown of slightly curling jet black hair was worn, pushed uh, boyishly back from a brow of rare intellectual and physical beauty. He was elegant in his dress, blithe and winsome in his manner. Indeed, he was only too winsome, too easy to love, too hard to uh, scold, too quick to charm and too charming to be judged. He was generous and kind affectionate and gay his name was John Wilkes Booth John the youngest but one of the ten children born to the celebrated tragedian Junius Brutus Booth and his wife Marianne was named for his paternal great grandmother's cousin John Wilkes parliamentarian get this, Lord Mayor of London and public uh, political agitator Junius Brutus the elder died in 1852 he acted up to the very last and died on a tour in the West. But for years before his death, his great mind had been unbalanced by his intemperate habits. So that only father, uh, the only father little John Booth ever knew was a madman, the, the wreck of a splendid genius, a lovable personality. Of the six children who survived their father, three became famous members of his profession. But John Wilkes was universally considered the most gifted of the family, though a severe bronchial affection, threatened his voice and consequently his future on the stage. He was the idol of his mother's heart and was, in turn, exceedingly fond of her, so fond that he made her a promise it was very hard for him to keep, a promise that he would never take up arms against the union she and all her other children staunchly upheld. John had spent the happiest, most impressionable years of his young professional life in the South, notably at Richmond, Virginia, where he was a member of John T. Ford's stock company and a warm favorite in and out of the theater. In 1859, he had been a volunteer soldier and did his part to put down treason by standing guard at the foot of the scaffold uh, whereon John Brown was hanged. Can you believe that? that he would have been there, and of course, and who else was there? It was Robert E. Lee. Okay, four years later, the government that had put Brown to death for attempting to free the slaves made a new definition of treason, made it treasonable to resist the freeing of the slaves. John Booth did not accept the new definition. For him, despite the tears and protests of his family, Wright remained with the South, and although he had promised his dear mother he would not take up arms against the Union, John did not try to stifle his passionate sympathy with the Southern cause, his burning ardor to do something toward its success. In Barnum's Hotel, Baltimore, that September day in 1864, the three young men talked of war and soberly discussed the repeated reverses of the Confederate armies, the steady swelling of Northern prisoners with thousands upon thousands of Southern prisoners. And they're talking about, and I picked it up later on, but he's talking with two uh of his friends, I think, to whom he's going to uh, propose a plan. Uh, It was then that John unfolded a stupendous scheme. So far as we know, he had conceived it quite recently and had not mentioned it to anyone until that day. It was a plan to seize the President of the United States, hurry him out of Washington, down uh, through intensely disloyal counties of Maryland, that would be disloyal to the north, uh, to the Potomac, ferry him across into Uh, Virginia, and carry him to Richmond, there to turn him over to the Confederate authorities to be held on their own terms, either the termination of the war or the exchange of one president for all Southern prisoners held by the North. The two young men to whom this wild scheme was unfolded and who were then and thereupon invited to become party to it must have gasped at its audacity. But John explained how easy it would be. The president was impatient of being guarded and often went about Washington unattended or with a single guard. It would be the easiest thing in the world for three or four fellows to seize him, say on one of his visits to the soldiers' home out 7th Street, thrust him into a closed carriage, drive rapidly into Maryland, and hasten to Richmond. Or he, or the uh, capture might be made on one of his returns unguarded from the war office to the White House late at night. If seized then, he could be hurried down through the gardens of the White House to an old house on 17th Street near the confluence of the Tiber and Potomac Rivers. This house, built in 1820, had a cellar, reached by a trap door, which was once used for a slave prison. There were two acres of grounds around the house, filled with high trees and close shrubbery, and a high brick wall along the street. Any cries from it would be effectually drowned long before reaching the street. Even the President of the United States, as see, might have been held prisoner there, close under the shadow of the White House and spirited fence when opportunity offered. It was a daring plan, of course, but think of the glory there would be in it. It would probably end this hideously bloody war, and when the grateful Confederacy found itself victorious, there would surely be handsome rewards for the brave boys who had saved it. John was eloquent, enthusiastic, seemed to understand the situation thoroughly. Of course, the other boys, quote, joined. And, of course, after that, Sam Arnold was less and less inclined to look for steady employment and more and more disturbingly given to talk of certain uh, prospects, about which he was mysteriously vague. The money in uh, his letter of a week later was doubtless from his friend John in consideration of Sam's temporary need, while great fortune awaited him. And now they're going to get into the whole plot. The house about which uh, Lachlan wrote will be referred to probably later on when we get to it as the Van Ness Mansion. So that was from Clara Lachlan's The Death of Lincoln. And uh, you should understand at this point that kidnapping plots were just bouncing off the walls. Uh, the, the Maryland plant, plantation owners, and, and again, understand, uh, as much as Maryland seems to be in the north to all of us, and in fact may be, even though the Mason-Dixon line was drawn between Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh uh, Pennsylvania and Maryland, Maryland begins the plantations and has uh, a topography, even though the climate's a little colder, I mean, but not much different from Virginia, uh, that lends itself to plantations and lends itself to slave labor. So Maryland considers it part of the South, although we have this clumsy problem here with having the capital of the United States later to become just the capital of the Union or the North, surrounded by unsympathetic citizens. I mean, not just on one side, I mean, surrounded. Maryland on the north, east, and west, and Virginia on the south, east, and west. So I, this is uh, you know, a, a very shaky situation. So uh, the plantation owners wanted to uh, kidnap Lincoln, if uh, his own party wanted to kidnap him and depose him for a, a fortnight, as they said. If you remember from se- uh, segment one, reading the letter uh, uh, between a, a profiteer by the name of Barnes uh, and his uh, contact in an export business in New York, DeMille, uh, saying about it, if we could just get him out of the way, we could get these uh, contracts that are sitting on the table, and this goes into the whole deal of the pork for cotton uh, transactions, where not only the North and the South had money in the line, but so did England. Uh, there were even kidnapping plots for Buchanan. And we'll pick that up at another point. <laughs> so what happened was, I, I mean, I look at the politicians of that day, and they seem rather crude. It's like if they didn't get their way, then they would just do something illegal, and that would be that. And what happened was Buchanan passed through his presidency very tenuously uh, without getting kidnapped, and this had to do with the Missouri Compromise, which is another whole deal, uh, at some point to as really the uh, trigger for the Civil War, and I think it's, that's probably correct. So, so what happened was once Lincoln became president, they just went ahead, they meaning those who were not happy with the way things were going, And these personages were, for the most part, in the same party as Lincoln, the Republican party. So they, they would, they just transferred their kidnapping plots from Buchanan to Lincoln. And of course did not do that in the first four years of his presidency. But here the kidnapping plots, uh, gain strength once again as the war is now coming to an end. And, uh, you got the whole deal about how to treat the South. Lincoln was very conciliatory. Uh, Those uh, in his party and in the North were not so conciliatory, and as much as they hid behind being abolitionists and wishing to see every slave free, they were into more of that. I mean, it was, to me, fully mean-spirited. So be that as it may, that was from uh, Lachlan, the death of Lincoln and her description of Booth and leading up to his uh, plot to kidnap Lincoln. At this point, we'll pick it up with... Uh, some, um, <clears throat> to some other information about uh, Booth, as contained in the book Dark Union, uh, the secret web of profiteers, politicians, and Booth conspirators that led to Lincoln's death, the authors Leonard F. Guttridge and Ray A. Neff. Uh, born on May 10, 1838, the son of Junius Brutus Booth, a powerful but increasingly alcoholic actor, Booth began his professional career at the age of 20 in the Holiday Street Theater Stock Company in Baltimore. For the next three years, while his brother Edwin won acting glory abroad, Wilkes had little more than walk-on parts, and he stumbled frequently, often forgot his lines, and once had to be dragged off into the wings, frozen. Now, that description of Booth would seem to be at odds with what Lachlan wrote, but understand that, yes, he did have a rough beginning, but he went on to acquit himself very well as an actor, Uh, So it's just that she went by, and and I'm not saying deliberately so, uh, his um, early problems with uh, the stage. He fought hard to perfect himself and to avoid the embarrassment of public comparison with his acting brothers Edwin and Junius Brutus, Jr., and their late father. He adopted the stage name of John Wilkes. In 1859, he married Isola D'Arcy Mills, a seafarer's daughter and an aspiring actress. Now, this aspiring actress stuff is debated uh, by those who are descendants of Isola. And it really doesn't seem like she was necessarily dedicated to be in theater, but she certainly did have uh, an artistic bent. And I, I will just say that, you know, whether or not she was thinking of getting, I mean, anybody can be an aspiring actor or actress. I mean, all that means is that you haven't got there yet. But uh, she she was an intelligent, resourceful woman, uh, a very creative and so I can understand, you know, in those terms, why that might be said of her. And, of course, that would make one think, well, then, okay, uh, Isola meets uh, John Wilkes Booth, and she's thinking, yeah, I'd like to get into showbiz. I'm not so sure that was the case, but we don't know. Uh, when having a wife in tow seemed hardly to square with a romantic public image, Booth's father had settled his own uh, spouse on a comfortable but remote Maryland farm. Following suit, John Wilkes Booth found an isolated retreat for Isola and their daughter, a hilltop home in 36 acres overlooking the Shenandoah River near Harper's Ferry. He christened the place Mount Olympus. His evolution into a player of unnerving energy came almost overnight. Edwin had returned from an Australian tour, and in Richmond he got his younger brother the role of Horatio to his hamlet. Before a packed house, Edwin introduced him in a tone some might have thought condescending. The effect on John Wilkes was galvanic. He shed all traces of inferiority and redoubled his efforts to overtake, to surpass. Edwin soon felt the competition at his heels. Writing to his mother, he said that he did not expect John to, quote, startle the world, unquote, but conceded that his brother had certainly improved as an actor and, quote, looked beautiful on the platform. Even off stage, John Wilkes Booth cut a compelling figure. He moved gracefully, was of live physique, and, when it suited him, could off, uh, soften his handsome, sometimes brooding face into the most lady-killing of smiles. It seems he was unable to discuss a subject, however trivial, without striking a pose. Men, as well as women, meeting Boo for the first time, were apt, apt to walk away dazed. The Montreal meeting was probably an exception. Among the uh, determined men at the St. Lawrence Hotel, the 26-year-old actor could not have stolen that show if he had tried. What they're talking about here are the negotiations of at least the pork for cotton deal between the North and the South. And Britain is also in this sort of a triangle, and they all met in Montreal, in the province of Quebec. Booth supported the Confederate cause, and especially after Brandy, loudly acclaimed it. But following brief pre-war militia service, he kept a promise to his mother never again to don a uniform stage. In 1863, on stage, he had excited audiences as if to outshine the more experienced Edwin. The voice could be shrill, and he often raised his lines, but the 19th century American stage knew no more vehement a performer. He tore through roles with such zest that fellow actors would pant for him to take it easy. As Count Pescara in The Apostate, a play, he seems, and this is a quote, He seems to uh, revel in rascality, to enjoy devilish tricks, glory like another Lucifer in the misery he has caused. Uh, And that's the end of that quote. And in this role, he had once stabbed himself in the arm. Yet the last act of King uh, Richard III was Booth's personal tour de force. Another quote, a critic. He dies hard, face blackened with blood, a, a face of thousand masks. End of the quote. Once he defied history and Shakespeare by tumbling the actor playing Richmond into the orchestra pit. (laughs) Okay. Uh, On Monday evening, November 9, 1863, he performed at Ford's Theater, Washington in a play by Charles Selby called The Marble Heart. Abraham Lincoln sat in the state box. The president could afford to take a brief respite from the pressure of wartime responsibilities. It was a period in the Civil War when campaigns were planned rather than fought a relatively bloodless interval between the summer fighting at Gettysburg and the impending struggle for Chattanooga. For the time being, Lincoln's thoughts were not so crushingly burdened by high-casualty figures. To drama critics in the audience, the star of the play exhibited a grasp of genius, was, quote, an actor of rare merit, end of quote. And at the final curtain, Abraham Lincoln joined the rest of the audience in applauding the man who would kill him. All this time, few Americans suspected that their dynamic young thespian led a double life. One who did know was his sister Asia, to whom he had melodramatically declared, My knowledge of drugs is invaluable. My beloved money, oh, never beloved until now, is the means, one of the means by which I serve the South. But only briefly did he disclose how he smuggled medicines into the Confederacy. Booth's drugs were brought uh, into American waters by brigs and schooners salvaged from a once-prosperous shipping concern, J. and J. Chaffee, based on Indian Island, New Brunswick, Canada, which contemporary guidebooks flattered as, quote, the little sea nymph of Passaquatomy Bay. Uh, In the mid-19th century, the English-born brothers, Chaffee, with at least a dozen sailing ships, plied the Atlantic seaboard with ships that carried Canadian lumber, millwork, and saltfish returning north with sugar, molasses, rum, and household luxuries. Since the Civil War's second year under booths often remote but effective direction, these decrepit craft had skirted the Union blockade to creep up the Chesapeake Bay and into secret, un- uh, unloading coves, where Confederate carriers waited to collect their cargoes of medicine for the journey into rebeldom. Serving the South in this manner assuaged any pangs of guilt the actor felt from avoiding the, that other theater where blood was real and the sobbing unrehearsed. Also, the pay was good. More recently, Booth had invested in oil, forming a partnership with a Cleveland theatrical entrepreneur named John Elsler, and an alcoholic sportsman. They had bought land in western Pennsylvania, a region attracting swarms of speculators. Booth footed, uh, footed most of the bill for drilling costs. Early reports from the property were not encouraging. Also, the drunken partner had become a liability. And in the meantime, Booth had separated from his wife, Isola, following the birth of their daughter. Five nights after performing in Washington before Lincoln, whom he detested, Booth embarked on a Western tour that was all, uh, all but ruined by wintry weather. He had accumulated funds in Canadian banks and a fortune in foreign minage that was secreted at Mount Olympus. But wartime restrictions had prevented uh, their uh, conversion into ready cash. And here's another uh, kind of portending legislation uh, prior to the uh, Trading with the Enemy Act, because the thing is, when you're under emergency war powers, the president can do anything. And here, uh, Booth's assets were frozen, thinking about what he had not only in paper, but also in gold and silver, which I believe the government might have prevented from being converted uh, the Trading with the Enemy Act that would come uh, uh, come about in another 50 years or so uh, talks about the president um, prohibiting the hoarding of gold and silver. But the question is, how much is hoarding? What's hoarding? It, you know, I mean, if, if you have savings in uh, gold coins, silver bars, whatever, uh, is it hoarding? I mean, it's saving, but uh, the government can call it hoarding and they can confiscate it. Under war powers, it is a dictatorial situation, and that's all there is to it. And it was that way with Lincoln, and many may not like him because of that, but in in essence, he was within the bounds to do that. I mean, the Constitution allows for executive orders and such. Then why? And it does. And that's why the Constitution, again, is just so much, frankly, bullshit. Now, at this time, I'd like to stop for a second, because we're going to go in for the second half of the hour uh, into the kidnap plots and the one that Booth was attached to and how things started to go very wrong <laughs> for Lincoln, unbeknownst to him, uh, when the kidnapping plot started to uh, lose some of its steam. just want to remind folks, uh, if you've not been to the website thinkorbebeaten.com, please take a look there because there's an awful lot of uh, free resources, information, uh, that you can avail yourselves of. There are other things there that are for uh, pay, uh, and that is, frankly, it does not go to me. It goes to the upkeep of the website and the webmaster uh, efforts, which should not go unrewarded. So uh, take a look around if you haven't, because there's a lot more there. There is uh, a free section on uh, the Civil War, interviews I did with other folks uh, years ago. Uh, there's also some uh, excerpts of a book called Divide and We Fall, uh, written by a number of historians about the uh, Confederacy. So take a look if you can, uh, and I think uh, you'll be pretty pleasantly surprised if you've not been there before. All right, now we're going to go into the kidnap plots. Now, there were four plots at least, but frankly, it, 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 in a general sense, okay, the Maryland plantation owners wanted him kidnapped. The Confederacy wouldn't mind him kidnapped. The Pork for Cotton people wanted him kidnapped. They made that very clear per that letter uh, of uh, March 1865, just weeks before Lincoln was assassinated, uh, because Lincoln, who had established or initiated the Pork for Cotton deal between North and South, uh, now decided to uh, abrogate it because he made a choice to end the war as quickly as possible, and that was not to anybody's liking, really, at least in the north and over in Europe. Part of that was then to stop the pork for cotton deal, but the thing is the businessmen had plenty of money on the table, millions in fact, both on this side of the Atlantic and on the other side. Uh, his own party wanted him kidnapped because they just really didn't like him, but he was electable. But they were brutal with him, without a doubt. In the meantime, they were also dictating to him as well. So this guy really didn't have (laughs) too much to hang on to with regard to uh, supporters and advocates. So before we go into the kidnapping plot to which Booth was a principal, listen to these guys. I mean, you talk about uncultured, roughneck, backwoods politicians these characters had no compunction whatsoever about just kidnapping the chief executive saying, screw it, we'll get what we want. And to do that, I want to refer to a book written by Lincoln's bodyguard, Ward Hill Lamont. It was titled, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Eighteen uh, Reflections of Abraham Lincoln, 1847 uh, to 1865. It was published by A.C. McLurg and Company, Chicago, 1895. So what Lincoln really inherited from Buchanan, among other things, Buchanan being the president before him, who was poisoned at his inauguration, I, was, I believe that was his second poisoning at the National Hotel in Washington, if I got that right, uh, but the latter at the inauguration party that did take a body count. He was very sick, but he did recover, but he understood what that was all about. So uh, they wanted. To, there were certain party, uh, factions in the party that wanted to kidnap... Buchanan to have something done. And I'm going to read that right now. So what happened was, after Buchanan passed him office, uh, able to avoid this kidnapping, whether he knew or not he was a target, guess who got it then? Lincoln did it in his first term, and we'll pick it up here. This is Chapter 17 entitled Plots and Assassination. This is Lamont writing, or Lamon. I don't know. I like Lamont because it's like French, but, you know, it's, it's kind of girly for a guy like this, Kentucky-born. Uh, it says the fact that we have in this country a literature of assassination, quote, voluminous and vast, end of quote, suggests a melancholy reflection on the disordered spirit of the times through which we have passed and on the woeful perversity of human nature even under conditions most favorable to intellectual progress and Christian civilization. It is hurtful to our pride as Americans to confess that our history is marred by records so repugnant to the spirit of our liberal institutions and to the good fellowship which ought to characterize both individual and national life in a free republic. But the appalling fact remains that two of our chief magistrates within as many decades were murdered in cold blood and that bulky volumes have been filled with circumstantial accounts of plots and conspiracies by and against men born upon our evil soil um, and enjoying the full protection of our laws. And yet, voluminous and extensive as these records are, they are by no means complete. Now, the other chief magistrate, to whom he refers, is Garfield. This was written in 1895. Garfield was killed in 1881. Uh, so understand that, yeah, that's those were the two. Well, that was the next uh, assassination after Lincoln. And then there was another one about 11 years later, 10 or 11, with McKinley. I believe that was 91, 92. This is a civilized country with civilized politics, really. And, and here, uh, Lamin is lamenting the condition of things back in well, 1895, before the century where we really went crooked. Okay, one, uh, one most daring attempt upon the life of Mr. Lincoln, uh, the boldest of all attempts of that character, and one which approached shockingly near to a murderous uh, success, was never made public. For prudential reasons, details were withheld from the press, but as the motives which imposed silence respecting a strange freak of homicidal frenzy no longer exist, It is perhaps a matter of duty to make public the story, together with certain documents which show in what deadly peril Mr. Lincoln stood during the ceremonies attending his second inauguration at the Capitol in March 1865. A glance at prior conspiracies will lead to a better understanding of the event to which these documents relate. The first conspiracy, from motives of policy, had for its object the abduction of President Buchanan. There was intense disgust on the part of certain fiery and ferocious leaders in the secession movement with the conservative temper of the executive and of the ruling members of his cabinet. After fruitless attempts to bully the administration into a change of policy in harmony with his revolutionary schemes, Mr. Wigfall, sometime in the month of December 1860, formed a plan for kidnapping Mr. Buchanan. A number of desperate men were banded together by him at Washington, and the details of the plot were discussed and agreed upon. The plan was to spirit Mr. Buchanan away, install Mr. Breckinridge in the White House and hold the captive president as a hostage until terms of compromise could be proposed to conservative Democrats and Republicans in the North. Mr. Wigfall and other choice spirits had no doubt their plan of accommodation could be enforced through the ad interim executive, which in this case would be Breckinridge. Uh, the scheme, however, could not be executed. In its first stage, without the concurrence and cooperation of Mr. Floyd, who threw Wigfall into a paroxysm of explosive wrath by flatly refusing to have anything to do with the enterprise, it was accordingly abandoned so far as Mr. Buchanan was concerned. So Buchanan escapes the, uh, the kidnapping attempt. When Mr. Lincoln was inaugurated in March 1861, the organization of plotters was still intact, but no plan of of assassination had as yet received the sanction of the conspirators conspirators as a body. It was their purpose to kidnap Mr. Lincoln and hold him in captivity without injury to his person until until such concessions were made to the southern leaders as their plan of compromise rendered necessary. The second scheme of abduction, having proved as abortive as the first, was abandoned in favor of a more deadly purpose. Some of the more desperate among the conspirators, exasperated by repeated failures, resolved to dispose of Mr. Lincoln by the swifter and surer means afforded by the dagger or the bullet. Circumstances, in a surprising way, seemed to favor their murderous designs. Against the protest of his friends, who by detective means had obtained for the plotters many of their secrets, Mr. Lincoln made the soldiers home his summer residence. The conspirators thought that either abduction or assassination could be accomplished without difficulty. They resolved upon the latter. They would dispatch him during one of his lonely rides after nightfall from the White House to his summer retreat, which was not all that far away. This is the soldier's home. The attempt was made. In the spring and early summer of 1862, I persistently urged upon Mr. Lincoln the necessity of a military escort to accompany him to uh, to and from his residence and place of business, And he as persistently opposed my proposition, always saying, when the subject was referred to, that there was not the slightest occasion for such precaution. One morning, however, in the month of August, he came riding up to the White House steps where I met him with a merry twinkle in his eyes that presaged some kind of fun. Uh, He said, I have something to tell you. And after we had entered his office, he locked the door, sat down and commenced his narration. At this distance of time, I will not pretend to give the exact words of this interview, but it will state accordingly my best recollections. He said, you know, I have always told you I thought you an idiot that ought to be put in a straitjacket if your apprehensions of my personal danger from assassination. You also know that uh, that the way we skulked into the city in the first place has been a source of shame and regret to me, for it did look so cowardly. Well, it goes on and on, and he recounts what happened to him, which was, uh, while he was writing, on horseback, uh, either to or from the soldier's home, Uh, a bullet whizzed very close to him, spooking his horse, uh, knocked his hat off, and it goes on and on, that has since been translated into a bullet passed through his stovepipe hat. Uh, This was not apparently the case. And before we move away from this work by Lamin, an interesting uh, anecdote he relates about... uh, Ulysses S. Grant finding out about Lincoln's assassination. And this is Laman writing. Upon the assassination of Mr. Lincoln being communicated to General Grant, he exclaimed, This is the darkest day of my life. I do not know what it means. Here was the rebellion put down in the field, and it is reasserting itself in the gutter. This is not because he thinks the Confederates set this up. Uh, we have fought it as a war. We now have to fight it as murder. Continuing his, his observations, he said, I was busy sending off orders to stop recruiting and the purchase of supplies and to muster out the Army. Mr. Lincoln had promised to go to the theater that e- evening and wanted me to accompany him. While I was with the President, a note was received by me from Mrs. Grant saying that she was desirous of leaving Washington on the same evening on a visit to her daughter at Burlington. That would be Burlington, New Jersey. Some incidents of trivial character had influenced this determination, and she decided to leave by an evening train. I was not disinclined to meet her wishes, not caring particularly to go to the theater. I therefore made my excuses to the president, and at that hour determined upon uh, we left home for the railway station. As we were driving along Pennsylvania Avenue, a horseman rode rapidly past us at a gallop. A wheeling his horse rode back, peering into our carriage as he again passed us. Mrs. Grant, with a perceptible shade of concern in her voice and manner, remarked to me, That is the very man who sat near us at lunch today with some others and tried to overhear our conversation. He was so rude, you remember, as to cause us to leave the dining room. Here he is again, riding after us. For myself, I thought it was only idle curiosity, but learned afterward that the horseman was Booth. It seemed that I was also to have been attacked and Mrs. Grant's sudden determination to leave Washington deranged the plan. Only a few days afterwards, I received an anonymous letter stating that the writer had been detailed to assassinate me, that he rode in my train as far as Haver de Grace, and as my car was locked, he failed to get in. So what this is talking about is the train leaving for New Jersey from Washington, D.C. Apparently, Booth was in the train, or Allegedly and rode as far as Havre de Grace, which is about half the distance between Baltimore and, let's say, the uh, the borderline with uh, Delaware and Pennsylvania. He now thanked God he had so failed. I remember very well that the conductor locked our car door, but how far the letter was uh, genuine I am unable to say. Uh, I was advised of the assassination of Mr. Lincoln in passing through Philadelphia and immediately returned to Washington by a special train. Now, this is Lemons throwing in his two cents about why he was not there that night at the theater. There's much conjecture about this for obvious reasons. Uh, Everybody pretty much knows or remembers hearing that the uh, cop or whatever that was stationed at the door uh, to the box where Lincoln, his wife, and Rathbone and his fiancée sat watching the play, uh, suddenly disappeared. Well, along those lines, there was some curiosity as to why Lamont was not uh, with Lincoln that night in Ford's Theater. And this is what he has to say: When the dreadful tragedy occurred, I was out of the city, having gone to Richmond on business for Mr. Lincoln, connected with the call of a convention for Reconstruction, about which there had had arisen some complications. I have preserved the pass Mr Lincoln gave me to go through to Richmond of which the following is a facsimile and in Lincoln's handwriting uh, it's scrawled: allow the, the this bearer uh W H Lemon and friend uh with with whatever it says any baggage to pass from Washington to Richmond and return signed April 11th 1865 by Abraham Lincoln the thing that had taken place immediately uh after it was clear the South was going to uh, surrender, Lincoln had uh, reached out to the state legislature of Virginia to see if they could get them to uh, be the first to cease hostilities and to frankly call in a day. This was Lincoln's attempts to try to make a quick And conciliatory peace with the southern states and reabsorb them into the Union. He may have been the only one in his party that desired such. Continuing, uh, Lamin writes, This was perhaps the last passport ever written or authorized by Abraham Lincoln. On the eve of my departure, I urged uh, upon Mr. Usher, the Secretary of the Interior, to persuade Mr. Lincoln to exercise extreme caution and to go out as little as possible while I was absent. Mr. Usher went with me to see Mr. Lincoln and when about to leave, I asked him if he would make me a promise. He asked that it was, and said that he thought he could venture to say he would. I wanted him to promise me that he would not go out after night while I was gone, particularly to the theater. He turned to Mr. Usher and said, Usher, this boy, meaning Laman, is a monomaniac on the subject of my safety. I can, hear him, uh, I can hear him or hear of his being around at all times of the night to prevent somebody from murdering me. He thinks I shall be killed, and we think he is going crazy. He then added, what does anyone want to assassinate me for? If anyone wants to do so, he can do it any day or night, if he is ready to give up his life for mine. It's nonsense. Mr. Usher then said, Mr. Lincoln, it, will, uh, it is well to listen and give uh, heed to Lamin. He is thrown among people that give him opportunities to know more about such matters than we know. I then re- uh, renewed my request, standing with my hat in my hand, ready to start. Well, said Mr. Lincoln, I promise to do the best I can towards it. He then shook me cordially by the hand and said, Goodbye. God bless you, Hill. This was the last time I ever saw my friend. We'll now get into the uh, preliminaries before uh, the kidnapping plot that really, well, never does happen. And, in fact, they were two kidnapping plots that didn't happen. But back to A Dark Union, it picks up in Chapter 8. From the war's beginning, the possibility of physical harm to Lincoln had often been discussed in the North. The villains would, of course, be rebels. It stood to reason that others, as well as Mosby, who operated mainly in northern Virginia, had tried to work up steam for kidnapping Lincoln. Newspapers North and South ran, quote, disclosures of kidnap plots in the making. Some appropriate reprisal against the North had been expected following the Dahlgren affair with its widely published orders to slay Jeff Davis. Just on a slight digression here about the Dahlgren raid, this raid uh, was headed by Judson Kilpatrick, a 28-year-old brigadier general whose command included such daring colonels as Ulrich Dahlgren, who lost a leg at Gettysburg, and George Armstrong Custer. Kilpatrick called at the White House on February thirteenth, the day on which Booth appeared in a dual role in his final Nashville performance, the Corsican brothers. Kilpatrick told Abraham Lincoln that his intentions were confined to sabotage, distribution of handbills promising amnesty to rebels who joined the Union cause, and freeing Union prisoners from Richmond's Libby prison. This is all that that's why they use the word confined, because well, there was a distortion of this or Someone's not telling the truth. All right, so um, it it was just confined to sabotage, distribution of handbills, promising amnesty, and uh, freeing union prisoners from Richmond's Libby Prison. Lincoln approved uh, neither Secretary of War Stanton nor General Grant could be budged from their opposition to a peaceful exchange of prisoners. And though Lincoln liked the idea of demolishing prison gates, practical politics and common humanity also determined his endorsement of Kilpatrick's stated battle plan. Uh, that year, 1864 was, in, was in an election year. Lincoln was aware that war-weary Northerners had begun to blame him for prolonging the conflict. So, under a bright moon on Sunday, February 28th, Kilpatrick's Third Cavalry Division, 3,500 strong, for, uh, forded the Rapidan River. Uh, six artillery pieces augmented the cavalcade, and bundles of amnesty pamphlets burdened mules plodding at the rear. <clears throat> Colonel Dahlgren's advance column detoured westward to cross the James River upstream. His objectives at Richmond had little to do with remission of sin and a goodwill handshake. Uh, guides and pioneers, he had ordered, with oakum, turpentine, and torpedoes, and scouts and men in rebel uniform will move down with the force on the south bank. Everything depends on surprise. We'll make a long story short. This didn't work out too well for Kilpatrick or Dahlgren. Uh, It got quite nasty, in fact, uh, for both of them. Uh, Dahlgren, I believe, was killed. I'll pick it up here. All that Wednesday, the rebels snapped at General Kilpatrick's heels. Finally, he shook them off and joined by survivors of Dahlgren's party, who gasped out their own melancholy tale. He led his men to the safety of Union lines along the York River. He had suffered more than 300 casualties, and the prisoners supposed to have been freed were in a, a fix worse than ever. Cramped living space and civilian resentment over sharing meager rations with Yankee soldiers had forced Richmond authorities to explore new sites for prisoner confinement. Kilpatrick's raid speeded up plans for their transfer in a new location in the Georgia swamplands, a place called Andersonville. Now here's where the problem arises. According to Richmond News Dispatches, papers taken from Dahlgren's body contained orders to unlock prison barracks, then burn the hateful city. It must be destroyed and Jeff Davis and his cabinet killed. That's much different from what was said supposedly between Kilpatrick and Lincoln. It was confined, as you remember, to sabotage and uh, propaganda pamphlets and uh, freeing some prisons, prisoners. But here they were talking about killing Jeff Davis. And this even got more embellished to that they were going to kill like everybody in the cabinet as well. Uh, the South reacted to these disclosures with fury that the scheme had miscarried and in no way mitigated its foulness. That the would-be assassins and arsonists were routed by valiant Confederates did nothing to erase the brutal true colors in which the Union's masters were at least exposed. Richmond newspapers branded them fiends bent on a war of extermination. What more have we to dread from Yankee malice? What have we to hope from their clemency? So much for Abraham Lincoln's readiness to pardon and embrace. As Southerners raged on, political radicals in the North uh, charged that uh, fake documents had been planted on the colonel's body. Uh, In private, those fiercely anti-rebel war hawks exulted over the outcome of the raid, almost as much as if the detested Richmond leaders had indeed been put to death. It purged the war of foolish chivalry and had reduced old Abe's amnesty leaflets to irreverent, irreverent scraps of paper. For appearance sake, the Union Army held a formal inquiry. Kilpatrick denied any intention of political murder or unjustified arson. Dahlgren's staff officers swore to the innocence of their lost commander. These statements were made public. Kept quiet was evidence that Lafayette Baker's detectives had found, showing that Dahlgren's orders had come via General Kilpatrick from Secretary Stanton. And only among themselves did some of the North's top Army officers assert their belief that the papers taken from the dead colonel were indeed genuine. Genuine or false, they voted ill for Lincoln. The obvious consequences were grave enough. The purported disclosure of a a plot to murder Confederate heads of state and set Richmond afire had roused Southerners to unprecedented anger. It guaranteed a prolonged and more bitter war and made mincemeat of Lincoln's hopes for national reunification. As events proved, it also helped seal his death warrant, meaning Lincoln's. So that was the Dahlgren affair. Um, and we get back to uh, the Chapter 8, The Deepening Peril, when we, uh, we're we talking about that uh, Union officers uh, expected reprisals against the North because of this Dahlgren affair, if it were really true, in fact, that uh, Jeff Davis was going to be assassinated. So we'll continue. Death threats abounded. A letter said to have been found on a Washington street uh, contained details of a bomb mechanism to be attached to Lincoln's carriage, which would automatically explode when the wheels turned. A note mailed to the White House early in 1864 and signed Joseph, declared the president, quote, weighed in the balance, found wanting, and a dead man in six months, end of quote. With the election campaign in full swing, a Western editor who thrived on red-hot journalism branded Lincoln a tyrant and called for some bold hand to pierce his heart with a dagger point. Washington's Metropolitan Police Force was new and inexperienced, and there was no government bureau exclusively responsible for the president's protection. Company K of the 150th Pennsylvania Infantry manned the White House grounds but uh, served chiefly for ceremonial parades. The Lincoln spent each summer at Soldiers' Home, a cluster of buildings on a hill three miles beyond the Capitol's northern boundary, at which times the Union Light Guard, about 100 men, picked from the 7th Independent Company of the Ohio Volunteer Cavalry, was at their disposal. Even then, Lincoln often rode in his carriage, unescorted. Uh, Whatever walking he did in the vicinity of the White House was usually to and from uh, the War Department, a 100 yards west of his front door, along a a path bordered by trees and a brick fence. During these strolls, he could glimpse through the intervening trees, a somber edifice now uh, known locally as the Old Van Ness Place. The old Van Ness Place is now, um, well, it's on the site of what is now uh, the building for the Organization of American States, which uh, is a little mm, southwest of the White House. And again, as it said here, it's not that very far away. Uh, An austere example of Benjamin Latrobe's residential architecture, the mansion stood north of Tiber Creek, a city-polluted branch of the Potomac. In earlier years, when the creek was clean enough for American presidents to swim in, its owner, General John Van Ness, enriched its commodious interior with marble mantels, paneled walls, and floors ornamented with mosaic. A society show place during the Van Ness's lifetime, and silent and shuttered for years thereafter, it had come alive again under Thomas Green's ownership. Green was a Virginia lawyer and a devout confederate. When war broke out, the glittering parties he had thrown for Washington's elite came to an abrupt end. Two of his sons fought for the South. Green was married to the sister of a rebel cavalry officer, Lindsay Lunsford Lomax. Early in the war, she and another Lomax girl were briefly jailed on disloyalty charges. For a time after their release, the Van Ness mansion was under watch by federal detectives who suspected the Greens of providing food and shelter for rebel spies and couriers. What they did not know uh, then was that the Van Ness Building had a hidden staircase that led to an extensively renovated wine cellar. The entire basement level had been partitioned and contained five cells, each furnished with a bunk, straw tick, and blankets. The doors were of oak, and from walls hung chains and shackles. At first seen, uh, at first glance, the scene may have appeared to be a row of slave uh, pens or dungeons or uh, <laughs> some other. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, rather uh, risque sexual activity. Uh, Yet new brick fortified the fireplace. Wall fixtures were free of rust, and the walls were freshly whitewashed with trivets in place for candles. Ceilings were laid as if awaiting plaster, but burlap bags had been stuffed above the laths for soundproofing. In the rear of the basement, another door opened on a tunnel sloping uh, east to join a storm sewer that paralleled 17th Street and emptied into Tiber Creek. It was thus possible to pass unseen between the tree-cloaked house and the Potomac River. <clears throat> Well-known to Colonel Mosby, the old mansion's possibilities had also occurred to John Wilkes Booth. The notion of making a personal move against uh, the North's leader had seldom left his mind since the aborted attempts to burn Richmond, and he was convinced to slay the Confederacy's leaders. Uh, after attending the St. Lawrence Hall business meeting with Will Browning, he buttonholed Clay and Thompson at the Donega Hotel and tried to interest them in a plot to abduct Lincoln. That pair, meaning Clay and Thompson, had tasted enough of misfired, harebrained stunts and turned down uh, the actor's proposal. Uh, make that Dunagana Hotel, sorry, Dunagana. Uh, even so, Booth had begun actively planning. Before leaving Montreal, he drew funds from a Canadian bank and had his theatrical wardrobe loaded on the Marie Victoria, bound for the Bahamas. In New York, he arranged for the transfer to his family of investments made in the Pennsylvania oil fields. From Water Street, he received an accounting of his contraband business. He caught a train to Baltimore and checked into Barnum's Hotel, where he mulled over the next step to take towards successfully kidnapping Abraham Lincoln. Then Booth was on the move again. Now, this is taken from Chapter 12. At mid-February 1865, John Wilkes Booth spent time with Harriet Alexander in room 238 of the Metropolitan Hotel in New York City. Haughtily attractive, 12 years his senior, and a dominant lover, She was also an intimate of Vice President-elect Andrew Johnson, his private aide, Will Browning, and several top radicals. She claimed to be one of the illegitimate daughters of Belgium's King Leopold I, and thereby related to uh, Queen Victoria. She called herself Lola. Well, Lola wants. In truth, she was born Harriet Stover in a remote uh, remote corner of southwest Virginia, uh, Virginia, But when her family moved to South Bend, Indiana, she developed a close relationship with Schuyler Colfax, Speaker of the House of Representatives. How close did that get? Her Prussian-born husband, Julius Poirier, was a bounder, thrown out of two Union Army regiments uh, during the war's first year, and by its third, through the influence of his attractive and opportunistic wife, he had attained the rank of colonel. (laughs) She had met Booth at a party. Now, only hours after his departure, she sent him a Valentine's Day card on which she had written, It was so nice to see you tonight, and I hope you will return soon. You are always welcome. Just like the slut you are. All right. Booth's next significant stop was Belleville, Ontario, traveling via Buffalo, uh, traveling by train, rather, via Buffalo. And that's where he stopped and was joined by Martha Mills, his former wife's half-sister. This is in much... Dispute. Uh, and Neff and, Nef and Guttridge may have made a mistake here because thus far uh, there's been nothing to support the fact that Martha Mills was, in fact, a half sister to Isola Booth. So, you know, you had this whole thing going on. Lola's doing her thing in New York with Booth, and now Booth is with Martha Mills, and off, off they go into Canada. It said, um, there, the two checked in at the same hotel as did two men with whom Booth would spend a mortifying hour or more hearing himself accused of not being up to the task of kidnapping Abraham Lincoln. One of the men was James V. Barnes, the other Captain James William Boyd, who had also been in New York that week on business at 178 one seventy eight and a half water Street. Uh, more about Boyd later uh, in fact it'll be in another two two segments from this one that will Find out all about Boy, but of course, if you think for a second, it's getting more interesting because both gentlemen, John Wilkes Booth and James William Boyd, had the same initials, and to boot, they kind of look alike. So Boy was brought into the uh, kidnapping plan, and I'll just read from the letter that uh, was also read from in the first segment because Booth is there to talk about the kidnapping plot without knowing beforehand that he is going to be relieved from that because they, there is not any confidence in Booth's ability to pull this all off. Uh, and I'll just read this letter. It was dated March 2nd, uh 1865. Uh, I was much dismayed by what I found on return from Canada. You were gone but four days when I arrived, uh, uh, but a great amount had transpired in the interim. The provost marshal had seized much of our park supply, and has uh, placed the rest beyond our power to deliver in its compliance with our contract. The day after our departure from New York, 1,300 barrels were seized at, uh, well, it's, now there's spelling, misspellings that are left in here because of authenticity. So uh, what he's saying is that uh, 3, 1,300 barrels were seized at Cape um, Gerardo, which is, I believe, in the boot, hill, boot heel of Missouri along the Mississippi River. All right, one of them, Missouri, Mississippi. All right, moving on. Um, Another 800 barrels at Chutes Landing. The next day saw the same repeated at Memphis, Owensboro, Louisville, and Brownsville. We are left with less than enough to fill our needs essential to our contracts due June 1st. Not only is the financial loss of the pork acute, but it places us in arrears on our contracts with the government. I cannot but believe that this is planned by the government for the express purpose of causing us to default, excuse me, and thereby lose our advantage granted earlier. It is the same as occurred elsewhere. Our friends in Liverpool are much upset by just this sort of thing on the part of the Lincoln Seward administration, and there's much speculation as to the effect it will have on the Crown's policy. It is certain that the loss of 25 million pounds will not be taken lightly. It is now clear that Lincoln allowed his friends to make agreements which would assure him of winning the election and that he is now repudiating those agreements so that he can become his own man. This is the thought in Liverpool, and they say it cannot be done. Moving on, this is where he talks about having no faith in John Wilkes Booth. He writes, whatever is done must be done by us either directly or indirectly. I had a long talk with John Wilkes Uh, Right here it says J.W., so that's the code for John Wilkes Booth. Uh, As I returned through Belleville, and he was greatly annoyed at at his being uh, placed under your friend, Captain B., which is James Boyd, he stated that the plot was his and that he should be allowed to carry it out. I explained that the situation had changed and that it was no longer a question of what he would do, but rather what he was able to do. He He is much too melodramatic, and to him the only thing is, quote, the scene both on the stage and off. It is essential that the president and secretary not be harmed, but if they could be deposed for a fortnight, the Congress, we are assured, could and would act in the manner of the executive. We are further assured that our contracts would be recognized in toto, And that's the deal. Uh, their thought about the kidnapping now is, is nothing really political, nor mili- military. I mean, the war is lost, in fact, He jotted down five things that made it impossible, four things that made it impossible uh, for anyone to help them except themselves. Uh, One was he stated that the CSA is dead, uh, Confederate States of America, and cannot help us. He said the Irish make big noises, but they fight only in saloons. He was talking about the possible help of the Fenians who were rebels uh, pitched against uh, Britain that were making trouble up in Canada and also striking into Canada. From uh, northern parts of uh, the East Coast, or whatever, I mean, New York, Vermont, and they were thinking also about getting into the kidnapping business, um, but it, it never came uh, to fruition. The third thing he stated was, "We have been betrayed by Lincoln and Seward, so has Chase." <coughs> That's Solomon Chase. Excuse me, Salmon Chase, who was mm, what, Secretary of the Treasury. And then later, resigned, and he resigned many times. And this time, Lincoln said, "Okay," and he made him uh, a Supreme Court justice. So it says, uh, "We've been betrayed by Lincoln and Seward, and so has Chase and friends in England. We can only, and then number four, it said, we can only expect limited help from England, but they will secure our credits." All right, and that's uh, fifth. He says, "Well, we've just stated whatever is done must be done by us either directly or indirectly." So that's the situation. There's a lot of money uh, on the table, and this is why I say I wonder if if not. I, I don't know of politicians. I would assume there were some, but certainly some moneyed interests uh, in England might have been in on uh, retribution for their loss. You know, it's always about the money. All right, so now we have in the hotel Barnes. Boyd and Booth, pick it up uh, in the book Dark Union. The three men talked in one room. Martha Mills was next door and heard angry voices, uh, her Wilkes loudly protesting to someone called Virgil. She couldn't catch a third voice, but Boyd was there, witness to what was essentially a showdown between Barnes and Booth. Uh, Barnes shouted, you don't realize how much money is involved. He had been in touch with northern politicians who wanted to usurp their president's authority. Even in private, Barnes knew that it was safer not to utter their names, and telltale papers of his were fated to go up in smoke. But he had secured their promise that with Lincoln off the scene, those who took his place would see to it that the Montreal deal, so frequently stalled, would be allowed to advance. Barnes knew, and he was one of many, that Booth was supposed to be uh, working at an abduction uh, scheme but it had become apparent that the actor was not up to the task. He seemed unable to distinguish between acting and reality. Barnes told him so. It was better that he be replaced by someone experienced in military command and undercover work who could count um, on the obedience of Mosby-type guerrillas. Because remember, uh, Boyd was in the Confederate Army. Uh, Such a replacement had been found in Captain James W. Boyd, formerly of the Confederate States Army. So there you go. In Martha's room later, Booth was, quote, angry, livid, paced the floor. These quotes are taken from an interview that Mills gave in around 1926, 1928. Um, obviously, she was still alive after all this. She was a young woman at the time that this transpired in uh, 1864 and 65, But she was a paramour, too, of Booth. Uh, And when the two were at the Belleville Railroad Depot, that means Mills and Booth, uh, waiting in the freezing cold for the Buffalo train, uh, and this is Mills stating that Wilkes was morose and said he was being squeezed out of the deal. Now, uh, that letter uh, and that meeting uh, took place, uh, well, the letter was written the first week of March, so that's the time frame we're looking at. Uh, obviously, it came after the meeting between Boyd, Booth, and Barnes. So we'll pick it up in the middle of March. Shortly before receiving Watson's letter, summoning him to New York, John Surratt. Now, entered John Surratt, whose mother, Mary Surratt, was one of the four uh, conspirators uh, hanged. Uh, she had a rooming house. She was a widow. She had a rooming house in D.C. Um, the question was whether she knew what was going on, how much she knew what was going on, and whether it related to a uh, a, a murder or a kidnapping. John Surratt. Surratt is uh, supposed to go off to New York, but beforehand, uh, he held a midnight meeting with Booth in a curtained side room of Gardier's on Pennsylvania Avenue. Other conspirators at the exclusive Washington restaurant included Sam Arnold and Michael O'Loughlin. Booth paid the waiter to make sure no one would disturb them except to bring fresh drinks and oysters. Then he made clear that while still brooding over his demotion as head of the kidnap plot, he had no tensions of taking a back seat. He did most of the talking. He hadn't abandoned the notion of carrying Lincoln bodily from a box seat at a play. Barnes was on the mark when he told Watson in his letter from Cape Girardeau that to Booth, the only thing is the scene. Beyond motives of financial payment, vengeance, or patriotism, as he saw it, striking at the all highest was the Booth pure theater, best performed with footlights and a spellbound audience. Lincoln would be taken at gunpoint in the state box, tied up and lowered to henchmen on the stage, who would then bundle him out the rear door to a waiting carriage. Uh, to, this non, to his non-thespian listeners at Gaudier's, much of what Booth said sounded crazy, and they told him as much. Jeers uh, were tossed. Sam Arnold uh, swore impatiently that he would, talk, he would walk out of the whole deal if another week passed without action. Booth silenced them with threats to shoot anyone who tried to quit. Uh, This is a quote. The plan was his, and he should be allowed to carry it out, which is what Barnes had written, describing Booth's mood. A title to the capture of Lincoln as a legitimate prize of war belonged to him alone. That was how Booth felt. He knew that Mosby's men and other would-be abductors looked to someone else for leadership. It was amounting to a rival conspiracy but he counted on a loyal handful, and he was not content to brood. He felt a growing compulsion to beat interlopers to the punch. On Friday morning, a determined Booth met Sam Arnold and told him that although he still preferred to seize Lincoln at the theater, there was now no more time to lose. They would intercept the president's carriage and hustle it with its occupants across the river into southern Maryland. Deciding to give Booth one last chance, Arnold and O'Loughlin accompanied him to a livery stable for horses then rode out to a tavern at the foot of the hill up to soldiers' home. Uh, Here they were joined by John Surratt and two more, a boatman from Port Tobacco named John Ezzerat and a Mosby parolee, Lewis Powell. They were unaware of a last-minute change in the president's schedule. That afternoon, Lincoln was on the balcony of the National Hotel, where Booth had a room, presenting a Confederate flag to the governor of Indiana, whose soldiers had captured it. Booth rode up to the hospital and asked if the president was expected. He was told no. Returning to his companions at the tavern, he dismissed them and left, his mood black. Arnold and O'Loughlin rode off to Baltimore, deciding to withdraw from the conspiracy and seek honest employment. In a letter to Booth the following week, Arnold warned that it was obvious that the authorities knew something was in the wind. This is a quote The undertaking is becoming more complicated. Why not, for the present, desist? Time more propitious will arrive yet. Do not act rashly. That's the end of the quote. An earlier suggestion should have been acted upon to go and see how it will be received in Richmond. Uh, Others of the group had also dispersed, and Booth's compulsion to jump the gun on rival abductors may have paled in contrast to the terrifying force with which, at Ford's Theater that same week, he played his familiar role of Piscara in The Apostate. Past reviews have appraised uh, both Booth's uh, Pescara as quote the epitome of villainy and the play itself a ferment of quote intensity, suffering, and overcharged horror. Given his present temper, Booth as Pescara was perfect casting. This latest rendition, fated to be his last professional appearance, stunned Washington critics as a masterpiece of, and this is a quote, satanic passion. Uh, then everyone uh, seemed on the move. John Surratt took a buggy into southern Maryland with weapons and a monkey wrench for opening and shutting manacles. He left them hidden in the Crossroads Tavern, where his parents had managed the post office. That's uh, his mother, Mary, and his then father, who uh, has since died. On Monday, he was back in Washington to receive Watson's letter from New York, which, after reading, he tucked behind a mirror in his bedroom. Surratt left on the night train, conferred with Watson at the Astor House, and was soon off south again, but now for Richmond. Booth left for Washington, and uh, left Washington for New York. Lola Alexander had written him, quote, "If you can come to town as supposed, I will be crushed if you do not stop to see me. Please do." Uh, but once in town, Booth went to the Winter, winter Garden Theater, ah, oh, the old Winter Garden, in Manhattan where he watched his brother's 100th consecutive performance as Hamlet. The ovation Edwin received was deafening proof that he alone of the Booth tragedians uh, deserved to wear their father's crown. All right, now on April 2nd, which was a Sunday, uh, Richmond fell. It was then that uh, Davis was informed that the Army could no longer hold out uh, the Union troops. So that was uh, Sunday, April 2nd. Now this is um, on Wednesday. On the quiet corner in Newport, Rhode Island, stood the Aquidneck House, a sedate stopping place conveniently located near the pier where Whitford Company steamboats regularly unloaded passengers from New York. The vessels docked in predawn gloom, a useful schedule for travelers who wished to avoid recognition because they could make directly for the hotel with a guest, according to the advertising brochures, quote, are of a class that do not care to mingle in the bustle of large hotels, end of quote. It was little frequented this early in the season. The steamboat from New York, docking on that chilly Wednesday morning, had brought only a few passengers, two of whom had passed through the pillared entrance of the Aquitnick House to register as J. W. Booth and Lady Boston. Uh, so it wasn't Lady Boston; it was M. Lady, comma Boston. Assuming that's where they were going to, uh, that was their destination. In Montreal, at the same time, Martha Mills was on an errand for Booth. She carried drafts from American banks to cash in British currency. Booth's further instructions were that she take the cash to a second Montreal bank and deposit it in the name of John Wilkes, a British subject, then telegraph him that the business was done. But the first bank, in her uh, later words, quote, refused the cash to cash the draft because they said of conditions in the United States. So I had to wire him of the trouble. He had told me where he could be reached. Booth could be reached at Newport with his companion, Harriet, Lola, Alexander. The couple was assigned a room number three overlooking Narragansett Bay. Alfred Smith, the desk clerk, said afterward that the woman was veiled. The two strolled in the gardens, and when they returned, Smith thought that the lady had been crying. Although Booth seemed agitated, he ordered a lavish dinner asking for room service because the lady was indisposed. But before the meals arrived, Booth received Martha's telegram from Montreal, and almost immediately the couple checked out. The two took the train for Boston, where they separated. So they split in Boston. Booth continued on to Montreal. At the St. Lawrence Hall, he used a false name, Okay, and R.D. Watson was there. So was John Surratt, among whose tasks was delivery of the last dispatches out of Richmond to the Canada-based Confederate commissioners. Much of whatever else went on in Montreal during those final days of America's war would remain undiscoverable. But besides Booth's, Watson's, and Surratt's, other intriguing names or uh, aliases sprinkled the St. Lawrence Hall Register, identifiable as belonging to people involved in the cotton scheming and its by now correlative plot to abduct Abraham Lincoln. Booth's role in it was reduced to that of helpful guide around Washington's theater precincts. He fumed all the more because of his inability to Montreal to secure the funds he would need after the kidnapping. He planned to escape using the name under which he first appeared on the American stage, John B. Wilkes. And in parentheses, it states, his middle name, Byron, was that of his father's firstborn who died an infant in England. in parentheses. In his anger, Booth believed that those who had frozen him out of the kidnap leadership also sought to freeze his funds. As Martha Mills recalled, comma, uh, excuse me, uh, quotation marks, the money in those banks was payment for medicines and had nothing to do with the capture plan. Remember that Booth was uh, smuggling quinine into the South from the North. Uh, she continues, the medicines have been delivered and paid for, payment being deposited in various American banks. Wilkes felt betrayed. Uh, he left Montreal with R.D. Watson. In New York, he headed for the Metropolitan Hotel, room 238, and a quarrel with Lola Alexander. They argued as they had in Newport over the Kilpatrick-Dalgren affair, Booth attacking the Federal's mission as a monstrous crime, the woman defending it as honorable. The memory of that misfired raid preyed on Booth's thoughts and was never so oppressive as now, when at every street turning he was met with banners and singing, the public celebrating the downfall of the Confederacy and the loss of command in the abduction plot still uh, stung his vanity. Uh, Had she known of these things, or of the strain of madness, with which Asia Booth wrote that her late father and brothers were afflicted, Lola still might have failed to hold her tongue. The words flew like barbs, piercing Booth's brain as if conditioning it for the final, failed goad she would fling at him before another week passed. On Saturday evening, April 8, aboard the steamer River Queen, Lincoln was off for uh, to General uh, Grant's headquarters that same day. Booth left New York by train for the Capitol. Where, in an acutely morbid state of mind, he took room 228 at the National Hotel. So, at this point now, Lincoln has six days left in his life. I'm going to leave it there for now because some somewhere soon, a kidnapping plot turns into an assassination plot. And it's hard to know. When this happened or how much – see, it's interesting that Booth's an actor because there might have been some acting going on here. Was Booth all that upset about the union's aborted attempt, among other things, to, uh, to kill Jefferson uh, Davis and as many uh, of high-ranking uh, politicians as they could get their hands on? Was he really that upset? Was it that big a deal? Uh, was Lola's badgering uh, overplayed? Or because I don't think, and you heard also in that last paragraph where Asia Booth later wrote about I guess when you talk about a man's strain you're talking about insanity, a threat of that which ran through the booth family uh, who knows i I don't think well, does it matter what I think, probably not, but i'm I'm trying to treat this whole situation as it was I mean it was a real murder mystery. And trying to put yourself, well, to try to judge where Booth was at, how much of it was faked, how much of it was real. Is this a guy who really cares about anything or anyone except for himself? And and I don't see him being all that loyal to the South. Again, not that this, I don't mean to demean Marylanders, but I mean, I mean, it wasn't like he lived in in the deep South and, and had generations before him that lived down there. Uh, his father was English-born, uh, so he was first-generation American. And, again, in Maryland, not in Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia. That may not matter, okay, because people could say, well, look how how, how much uh, Virginia was involved in this. Uh, well, that's you know, also because of geographics. But what I'm getting at here is that in the next few days, or has it already happened, that Boots got in his mind that screw the abduction plot, we're going to kill him. But now just think back also to what the people in Britain are feeling about Lincoln and what it cost them. Now, if even, just think of the mafia. If, if they were going to lose a bunch of money on somebody, they had to pay. They had to be whacked. And that's where I'm coming from. Now, there's stories, and we may get into this later on, about how the Knights of the Golden Circle offered money for Booth to kill him. Uh, was England involved in this at all? And then you get into the whole thing about why did the telegraph lines go down after uh, the assassination? Who had the power to do that? Because Booth didn't, none of the conspirators did. So you see, if that was it was if that was coming from an order up top, would that have been Stanton? And where did Stanton stand between the Brits uh, perhaps wanting some vengeance? Certainly, he was not going to have anything to do with the Knights of the Golden Circle. So, when did Booth make up his mind to kill Lincoln? And did it really have anything to do with his upset over, as it said, the uh, the uh, Dahlgren affair? So, we'll find out more, but this is a place where some of his co-conspirators, like O'Loughlin and Arnold, are not down for the murder and may not even know that he had decided to do that. It seems to me, and you'll, you'll hear this later, that the only ones who knew there was going to be a murder was uh, this Lewis Payne, and he was the individual allegedly that went in and tried to kill Seward and, and didn't, didn't, uh, wasn't successful. And also Azeroth, who was supposed to kill Andrew Johnson, but then are, there are those who believe that Andrew Johnson was in on the plot. This is where it gets kind of interesting, but certainly confusing. I and mean, you may never know the answer. So who gave the order? And Azeroth did not attempt uh, to take the life of Johnson. And he let out. And yet he is one of the four that hanged. Uh, Lewis Powell slash Payne, however you want to call him, was hanged. Surratt was hanged. And um, and so was David Harold. So we're going to find out, perhaps, where this might have taken a turn, and it might have to come from consulting certain other sources. But um, it's very clear, and it's an understatement to say, that there were many who wanted Lincoln's head. So that's it for this segment of uh, Mystery History Theater, and we'll go on next time with a look at the other booth, if you will, James William Boyd.